So today, as the family at 4th Avenue continues in this series, Who I Am, I love this. I love what Kyle is doing, starting off diving into the depths of God. And as we continue in this series, focusing on the character of God, I want to let God declare to us who he is when we're at our worst. Exodus chapter 34 has been the passage that has been the springboard passage. This is God's self-declaration. He, he takes away the curtain, the veil of his character, and he just puts it out there for Moses and for the people of Israel to see. And he says this, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now, when we read that last part of verse 7, it, for many of us, it sounds like a record scratch. That, that doesn't seem to go with the rest of the compassion and the grace and the abounding love. But that's only because we just don't know the heart of God and its fullness. And it's hard for us in our flawed state to understand the justice and the holiness of God along with his love and his mercy and his kindness. But I know that as you keep diving deeper into this passage and into scripture and into the character of God, you will be looking at those things. And what I hope is that they will just lead you to a place of mystery and awe and worship before the Lord. Today we're going to focus on this phrase, what God says about himself, that he is a compassionate God. And so as we do that, let me uh, first ask you a couple of questions just to get your minds and hearts ready to interact with these scriptures and with the truths about God's personality. Uh, how many of you were at your best this week? Um, what did your best look like? Did you have some good moments this week? You remembered your wife's birthday. You lost another pound. You got a raise or a promotion or a new position. You let the other driver have the parking space. Even though you got there at the same time and you were in a hurry, you let them have it, have that space. And what about the moments that life simply went your way? You didn't choose good. Good was just happening to you. Your favorite team won. The checkout at the grocery store didn't have anybody in the line when you walked up. You got all green lights on the way to work. The dress you bought had an extra 50% off at the counter. You didn't even know it. Extra bargain. How many of you enjoyed those kinds of moments this week? And, and let's think about the, the flip side of that. How many of you were at your worst this week? 
What did your worst look like? You didn't make your daughter's soccer game because the meeting went long again. You forgot to get a work or a school assignment done, and you lied about why it was not finished. You blew your fuse and let your anger spill out, hurting your spouse's feelings. You let a disappointment ruin your mood for the day. You received the diagnosis. It wasn't a choice, like those things were a choice uh, taken up in the moment, but you received a diagnosis that you didn't want. All red lights on the way to work. Uh, you, you got rear-ended by another car as you were waiting for the other person to take that space that you were giving them. And so things were happening and it wasn't a great moment. When you're at your best and life is going your way, what do you tell yourself about how God feels about you? When you've made the right choices, you've made good choices, or when just good things seem to be coming your way and you're just enjoying blessing, what do you tell yourself about how God feels about you? And on the flip side, when you're at your worst and you have once again messed up, the habit that you thought you were getting out of is back and you haven't made the choices that have been good and you're not going the direction that you want to go, how does God see you in those moments? When you are hurting simply because life is difficult, how does God see you in that moment of suffering and pain, in your brokenness and sin because of choices? How does God see you in your mess? This is an incredibly important question. A.W. Tozer, a pastor from the mid-20th century in, in particular, writes in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I would say this a little differently than Tozer, who's one of my favorite authors and I would say has really shaped my life in many ways. But I would say it like this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most life-defining thought we have. Life-defining. It's not the most important thing about us. I would say the most important thing about us is that we are created by God to be as image bearers and we're loved by God and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. The most important thing is that you're a loved one of God. But I think the most life-defining thing that enters our minds is what we think about God. Psychiatrist Dr. Timothy Jennings says it this way, we have power over what we believe. We have power over what we believe. We have choices and we can sort through and we can try to discern. We have power over what we believe, but what we believe has power over us. And so Brennan Manning uh, Author Brendan Manning, in his book, The Relentless Tenderness of Jesus, uh, says it like this. When you imagine 
uh, God's favor and affection for Jesus, it's, it's 100%. The Father loves Jesus 100%. You know, Mother Teresa, she was amazing, probably 70%. You, 2%. And he says that, that many of us, he asserts that many of us think of ourselves like that. And he says that when we think like that, we're not thinking of God, but of ourselves. We are imposing onto God our own flawed and frail sense of who he is. Our own flawed and frail sense of who we are and what the world is like. So today I want us to listen to the word of God. And we're going to do a quick survey of a few passages that remind us of the way that God feels about us, the way that God thinks about us. And I would want these kinds of things, these truths from scriptures, to be the kinds of things that would shape our lives, not just our thoughts, but our emotions, our attitudes, our desires, our behaviors, our relationships. Because what we think about God, the way that we see God, when we answer the, the question, what kind of God is God, that is going to shape everything in our lives. You will build your life based on the kind of God you think God is. And so in his word, he says about himself that he is a compassionate God. He says this to Moses and to Israel, so just right out of the gate, they're, they're out of Egypt, they've been, they've been saved from slavery, they're being sent into this new promised land, they're of course still in the wilderness, just on the other side, wiping their brows from the close call with the Egyptians, and here is Moses, he's gone up to, to receive the, the law from God, and God is saying, but as we, as we move into this new era of life, this new chapter of this great story that God tells from beginning to end and is still telling today in and through his people and in the world that he loves. He says, I want you to know the Lord is compassionate and gracious. I am compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. I want you to know that about me. Compassion is in the character of God. Compassionate or merciful is who God is. This means that, the, that the, as the story of the Bible is the first story about God, it means that the story is saturated with compassion, soaked in the mercy of God. There's compassion and mercy throughout the story. So today, in this survey, we're just going to take a brief look at a few of these places. In both the Old and the New Testaments, the word compassion means moved in one's gut or intestines. The Greek word even sounds like the meaning, splognisomai. It just kind of comes from that guttural. Now, Mike would be able to say that a lot better than I did. But it comes from this, that, that guttural uh, sound even of compassion coming out of the guts or the intestines. And it's always used when someone, especially God, sees the condition or the state of a person. This compassion is sometimes called mercy or the compassionate God is sometimes called the merciful God, but it's woven throughout the story. 
these qualities and the people of Israel take up these qualities from Exodus 34 and they sound this as an anthem throughout the Old Testament. It's as if because it, this place in 30, Exodus 34, uh, 5 through 7, there are eight more times where those verses are just about repeated verbatim. And then there are multiple verses that pick parts of those verses and repeat them. It's, it's almost as if Israel says, well, you know what they say about God? He's merciful. He's compassionate. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. It's just one of those things. That's what we say about because that's who he is. In 2 Chronicles 30, King Hezekiah of Judah has called the nation together for uh, the celebration of Passover. It hasn't been celebrated in so long, and the people have forgotten. And he wants to call them together to come to Jerusalem to worship the Lord, to remember what he had done for them in the Exodus and bringing them out of slavery. That he's a God who wants to be with them. He wants them to be his people. He wants to be their God. He wants to make them a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, his treasured possession. And so they need to celebrate who God is and what God's done and who God has made them to be. And so in chapter 30, King Hezekiah says, we need to do this because we have not been going down the right path. We've been wandering away. There's been a few good kings in Judah. There were no good kings in Israel. 20 for 20 bad kings leading the people away from Yahweh. But he says here, if you return to the Lord, you don't have to keep going down this path of rebellion and destruction. If you return to the Lord, then your fellow Israelites and your children will be shown compassion by their captors. Someday that's coming. And will return to this land. Why? For the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate. Listen to this last verse. He will not turn his face from you if you return to him. Now I want you to understand the, the sequence of this. He will not turn his face from you if you return to him. Repentance means to turn or to return. So the people have been walking away from God. And he says, if you turn around to face God... God will be there looking at you, waiting for you to return to him, waiting for you to come back into this relationship that he's created you for. When you turn around, he will not turn his face away from you. His face is set on you, waiting for you to come back. In Psalm 51, David, after he has committed adultery with Bathsheba, after judgment has been pronounced on him, consequences have been declared over him and yet he prays in psalm 51 have mercy on me O god according to your unfailing love according to your great compassion blot out all my transgressions wash away my iniquity cleanse me from my sin david who knows yahweh intimately confesses his sin before the lord knowing that god has great compassion the basis for forgiveness is not David getting his life together and doing good deeds to offset the bad ones. The basis for forgiveness is the great compassion and unfailing love of God. So as we turn to the New Testament, more of this survey, the compassionate character of God that is declared in Torah is now embodied in Jesus. It's been spoken of in the Torah, the law, the prophets, the writings, this declaration of God's 
compassion and kindness and faithfulness and love and mercy and slow to anger, all those things. In Matthew chapter 9, it says that Jesus was going through all the towns, and this has been after one, one miracle after another. And he's been on the move with his disciples throughout Galilee. Galilee, that area that for many of the Jewish people of that day was just kind of forgotten. Jesus was even from Nazareth, which was kind of like, you know, the armpit of Galilee. It was just not the most beautiful place you'd want to go. And yet Jesus is wandering through Galilee, ministering to people. It says that when he went through the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness, when he saw the crowds, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. When he sees them in this condition, his guts are moved. See, the difference between sympathy or empathy and compassion is that for God, when he feels this in his guts, in his intestines, he's moved into action. It's what separates compassion from just feeling sorry for someone. Compassion always leads to action. It leads to action for God, and it leads to action for the people of God. When we see someone moved by compassion, we act. That's part of what Gary was talking about this morning. And this is what Jesus does. In Luke chapter 7, he's, he's just at the beginning of chapter 7, Jesus has healed the servant of a centurion. You may remember that story where there's, there's a servant who comes to Jesus and says, oh, there's a, there's a centurion whose servant is dying. He wants you to come quickly to heal him. The Jews, the leader, leaders are standing there and said, this man deserves it. He's been really good to us. You need to go now. So he's moving that way, and on the way, another servant comes and says, listen, the, master, the, the centurion says, you don't have to come at all. You just say the word. And Jesus, who recognizes the faith of the centurion, who recognizes the authority of Jesus, and the goodness of Jesus, Jesus says, I, I haven't seen such great faith in all of Israel. But the very next story is a story of a woman in Nain. She's a widow, and now she is leading the procession of a funeral for her only son. So her husband's gone, her only son is gone, she has no social security, they're both dead. And the people of the village, as they would have done in first century Jewish culture, they've joined the procession and there's weeping and they're wailing and she's out front with, with the beer behind it as they carry the, the body on top of the beer, doing this. And Jesus, it says, when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. That, that root word is the same for compassion. His heart went out for her. And he said... Don't cry. So the great faith of the centurion at the first part of the chapter, this woman has no faith. What happens when you're in a moment and, 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 that, and life is falling apart for you and you feel like you can't even muster up faith? You're so broken. You're so weary. There's so much suffering around you. Will God notice you if you don't have faith? Here's a story where Jesus' compassion drives him to the woman. And in fact, he goes up to her and he says something ludicrous. He says, don't cry. Which you just don't say to someone 
unless you can do something about it. And he says to the corpse, get up. And you can imagine the celebration. In Luke 15, the three stories of, the, of what we call the lost things, really they're, why do we call them the lost things? They all get found. Why do we call them the found things? Maybe we should scratch that heading out in our, in our Bibles and put the found son and the found coin. And the, I don't know. The emphasis is on the character of God because that's how the whole parables, a string of parables starts at the beginning of Luke chapter 15. The religious leaders are, are pointing out that Jesus is a friend of sinners. He eats with tax collectors and sinners. He, surely the sins of those kinds of people are going to rub off on Jesus. What they don't know is that, as New Testament scholar Craig Blomberg puts it, Jesus' holiness is what's contagious, not their sin. And so here's Jesus telling these stories. He gets to the story about the son. There's two lost sons in the parable. But the son who's younger and is asked for the inheritance goes off. He squanders it. He wastes it. He finds himself in a pig pen. And while he's in the pig pen, he, he comes to his senses. It's like, what am I doing here? How have I got here? I know what I'll do. I'll go back to my father. And, and I'm going to go back and I'm going to say, what am I going to say? I'm going to say, I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me like a hired servant. Yeah, that's what I'll do. That's what I'll say. I'm going to go back and I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me like a hired servant. He rehearses and he goes and he sees and he gets outside the, the place of his father. And verse 20 in chapter 15 says, when he went to his father, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His face was looking for him. And he was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son. And he threw his arms around him. And he kissed him. And the son said to him, because, you know, he'd remembered, he had a speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And it's like, shh, quick. Bring the, the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. So they began to celebrate. Because the face of God that is turned towards people who realize that they are in a mess is the face that looks of them and wants to run to them. The Father, as He sees you in whatever mess you are in today, if you're at your worst, if you're at your best, what the Father sees is one of His loved ones. And what He wants to do is come to you. In their book, The Other Half of Church, psychologist Jim Wilder and Pastor Michael Hendricks approach spiritual formation with brain science. 
And they point to the processes of the brain and they assert that God designed our brains to run on joy like a car runs on fuel. They write, God designed our brains to seek joy through eyes and facial expression, through being with people who are glad to be with you. These are the people, they say, who have the sparkle in their eye when they see you. You know those people. They're so happy to see you. But what I believe God would have us know about him is that when he sees you, even if you're in the midst of a mess, his eyes sparkle. That he has compassion on you and your mess doesn't push him away. It actually brings him close. That's what compassion means. That in his guts, when he sees you in your broken state, contrite perhaps like David when he's fallen again in sin, or just in, in a, a heap of suffering because of illness or financial difficulty or relationship struggles, when he sees you in the mess, he doesn't run away from you. He moves toward you in grace and mercy and in compassion. He wants to be near you. His face lights up when he sees you. He's looking for you to turn around. And when you do, when you're in the mess, he's not turning his face away, but moving toward your mess. Because Jesus is the one whose love and kindness and compassion and holiness brings healing and cleansing to our lives. I want to invite our team to come up. As they come up and get ready, I want you to think about how God sees you. Think about how others see you. Think about how friends, family, sometimes teachers, preachers, coaches, enemies have seen you. And instead of listening to that myriad of voices, listen to the voice of God and watch for the face of Jesus. Father, we pray that as you move in our hearts today, that where we believe something that is untrue about you and where we make you into a sort of false God, that you would correct our understanding, that you would allow us to see the face of Jesus, and that you would allow us to see a face that delights in moving toward us when we're in our mess and at our worst. And we pray, Father, that each heart here would feel your great compassion and that your compassion then would change our lives in every way. The way that we see ourselves, the way that we see others, and the way that we move towards others in their own suffering and brokenness. And we pray this in the name of Jesus who makes it happen. Amen.